You're listening to Along the Narrow Way, a podcast that walks you through books of the Bible verse by verse to help you dig into God's Word so you can walk along the narrow way with Christ more faithfully. Hosted by Pastor Will Russell and co-hosted by Jimmy Miller. Join them as they help us understand the Bible so we can walk more faithfully as disciples of Jesus. Last week we were off, we had spring break, everyone out of pocket and so forth. The week before that, I was gone. Jimmy, you covered for me, did a great job, I appreciate that. No problem. I always no like problem. tuning in and being able to listen and uh, learn from you, so I appreciate that. I hope somebody got something out oh, of that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> this week we're going to pick up just where y'all left off two weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start up with uh, verse 12 and carry on. So if you're following along here at the church, or if you're one of our online viewers um, or one of our podcasters who study with us, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and um, we're going to look at verse 12. Before we read that, I'm going to ask Jimmy, would you open us up with a word of prayer tonight? Sure will, sure will. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this night and this being able to come together and uh, and study your word, Lord, and we just praise you for that, Lord, and we just ask for the anointing of your Holy Spirit on, you, on us right now as we rightly divide your word of truth. Help us to apply ourselves to your word and your word to our lives. And Father, we do lift up the victims of any storms today, especially those in Springdale. We lift them up to you, Father, and we just pray your will be done in their lives. And we just thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. All right, so chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians is probably one of my favorite chapters um, because it covers pretty much everything. It's a, it's a do-it-all tool yeah. is what it yes, is. It's, it is. it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like a crescent wrench in a toolbox. It can do a little bit of everything. That's right. Um, and it, it'll cover, this chapter will cover things that, that have to do with death and the passing of a saint. It has to do with Christian living. It, it's very evangelistic in the things it talks about. All the, this entire chapter from beginning to end. Um, but the, the last half of the chapter is probably the best known part of the chapter because you get into very common verses that people use a lot. Yes. They're used in a lot of sermons and things like that. So I expect most of this will be familiar um, with everyone. But let's just jump in here with verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new." Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God." For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All right, so let's go back and, and start pulling this apart a little bit. Here in verse 12, um, Paul makes a statement, we do not commend ourselves again to you. Now, this is a reference back to what's come up throughout the course of our study, where Paul has had to defend himself against false accusations, the false teachers that have inundated the church who are trying to undermine him and his teachings, his authority. Uh, he's saying, look, I'm not commending myself to you. This is the second time he said this. He said it earlier in chapter 3. I'm not going to commend myself to you again. I don't have to commend myself to you again. Um, we see that Paul's actions weren't self-motivated. He wasn't being self-indulgent. He wasn't being egotistical. 
He didn't have some type of selfish intent. He's not worried about commending himself again to this church. Um, In fact, he's going to do something pretty wise in regard to addressing those who would accuse him falsely of not being a good teacher or having selfish motivations or just not being above board. Look at what he says. He's not going to commend himself, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Paul is going to set the record straight, but he's not going to get in an arguing match with these false teachers. He's not going to even direct his words towards the false teachers. I think he understood that trying to defend himself against those who were trying to undermine him was frivolous. Sometimes we need to know that when we have an enemy, when we have someone who will speak against us, when we have someone who wants to undermine us, it doesn't really do any good to try to argue with them because they're going to keep undermining you. What you do is what Paul did. He spoke to the church. He said, church, remember who I am. Remember what I've taught. Remember my consistency. Remember my witness. Look at the evidence. He's giving the people of the church an opportunity to be equipped to answer these false teachers. Let me reinforce what you already know so that when you hear a falsehood, you can address it yourself. He's equipping the church to boast on his behalf. Now, that doesn't mean to go brag about Paul. It simply means he's giving them the opportunity to understand enough to answer those who would bring accusations into the church. The church members being prepared to address falsehoods, not simply depending on Paul to address the falsehoods. And so we see a pretty good example set here. There are times when it's frivolous for us to address those who levy accusations against the church or against the gospel and so forth, sometimes we're better served to spend investing ourselves in being equipped to individually answer those who would approach us with accusations or with questions about the gospel, about the church and so forth. Would you say say this is the first apologetics course being taught right here (laughs) it might be it might be in a way (laughs) it might be i think paul's wanting the people to understand look i can't always stop write you a letter i can't always come to the church i can't always intervene every time there's a falsehood every time there's an accusation every time something arises you have to be equipped to stand and address these things to give an answer and so he's he's putting the burden back to the church members saying look You need to have a clear understanding of truth that you might refute the ravings of false teachers, those who are the enemies of Paul that he's addressing. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm giving you the opportunity. You step in. You have the answer. And then he reveals who these people are. He he unmasks who these people are who would bring falsehoods into the church. He says, you may give an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Mm. So he's just unmasked who these people really are. They boast in appearance, but not in heart. In other words, outwardly, they do all they can do to appear appear, uh, faithful, pious, righteous, But quite honestly, the motivation of their heart is far from righteousness. The motivation of their heart is really corrupt. Outwardly, they display a righteousness, but inwardly, they're corrupt and selfishly motivated. They lack the integrity that's required. They're really hypocrites is who they are. That's That's what that statement means, to boast outwardly, to boast in appearance, but not in the heart. That, that's a description of a hypocrite. They portray one thing, but within their heart, they live another thing. Paul said, look, the reality is you're dealing with a bunch of hypocrites. It's, it's the description of the Pharisees 
in Jesus' day where they pursued this outward appearance of righteousness and loftiness, of dedication to God. But Jesus looked at them and said, but inwardly, you're full of just death. He called them whitewashed tombs that on the outside looked nice, but inwardly were just full of dead men's bones. Outwardly, you have the appearance of righteousness, but inwardly, your heart is corrupt. So these people who were causing problems within the church, if you just saw them during a church service, well, they looked righteous, they looked pious, they looked like any other worshiper, but inwardly their heart was corrupt. Paul's calling them for who they are. He's, he's letting it be seen. And then he goes into an interesting comment. This is verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Paul said, look, what if I'm beside myself? The inference there is that someone had accused Paul of being beside himself. In the Greek, that word means to stand outside of oneself. It's used to describe someone who's lost their senses. It's someone who's saying, okay, look, this guy's looney toony. This guy's kind of a fruitcake. This guy's off his rocker. A madman. Yes. That's, that's, that's the reference there. Paul, you are a lunatic. You're crazy. You know, they did the same thing to Jesus. They absolutely did. He's putting on a good Christ-likeness, isn't he? They, they absolutely did. You, know, you got to have a little bit of opposition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, look, he, he describes why they say that. Why would someone say he's beside himself? <laughs> he says here, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Paul's detractors took his absolute devotion to God as being fanatical, Mm -hmm. suggesting that he was mentally unstable because he was so committed to Christ. He's so committed, so devoted to Jesus. Man, that guy's got to be off his rocker. To be that committed to Jesus? No, that, that guy's crazy. But you know, might hear, might hear him called a Bible thumper or That's holy right. roller today. That's right. That's right. These Jesus mm-hmm. freak. That's right. The reality is, people, even in our culture today, and probably more so in our culture today than ever before, who grow spiritually, who grow in spiritual maturity, who grow in their devotion to Christ, they appear to those in the world to kind of be off the rocker, yeah. to be fanatical. They take this stuff a little too seriously. You just can't, you, you just are unable to think about the issues properly because you're just so committed to Christ. You just can't weigh out the things properly. You can't judge things properly because you're just a fanatic. Well, I don't know that that's a bad thing. When I'm so committed to Christ that my views on things, my judgment on things are so compelled to fit with his expectations that people see me as, as being too far. I think that's probably what we're called to be. We've just watered it down. That's right. We've just weakened the stance. We've just pulled back from that. But here, Paul's saying, look, what if I am beside myself? It's because of my commitment to God. It's my devotion to the Lord. It's, it's my fanatical unwillingness to compromise my stance with Jesus. Amen. And, and so that's where he's at. But then he goes on and says, but what if I'm of sound mind? What if I do think clearly? What if, what if I do have this figured out? He says, it's for your benefit. What I do benefits you. It's for your spiritual growth. It's for your sanctification. If I am sensible and under control, if I do have control of my mental faculties, you benefit from it because here I am teaching and here I am writing and here I am helping. So maybe I'm off my rocker, maybe I'm not, but either way, it's going to be good for you. I just wonder, those times when uh, your kids look at you and say, you're just out of touch. (laughs) You just don't understand. 
You, you just don't know how it works. You're just too uncompromising or whatever it may be. Probably not a bad thing because ultimately it's for their benefit. Yeah. The same's true within the yeah. church and our co-workers and so on and so forth. A prominent thing within our world has been for such a long time is tolerance, acceptance. The problem is the world has redefined tolerance. The world has redefined acceptance. What they really mean is don't be so fanatical about your beliefs because it makes us uncomfortable about our lifestyles. We need to get back to being a little more fanatical, I think. A little more draw the line in the stand and I won't cross it kind of devotion to God. So whether or not people thought Paul was off his rocker or whether he was sound mind, he focused on God. He served God. He honored God. His life, his ministry, it gave proof that his focus was in the right place. Regardless of what people might have said about him, he focused on pleasing God. In fact, earlier in this chapter, y'all already mentioned it um, two weeks ago, his focus was on being well-pleasing to the Lord. That's what he wanted to do. He, he was going to be well-pleasing to God, and he was going to shepherd the church. And in the end, what really mattered was what God had to say. That is. How would God judge his work? And so, Paul, you get the, almost the inkling that he felt like he had to address this. Now, I'm interjecting here. Take it for what it's worth. I'm interjecting here. But you almost get the inkling he felt like he had to say this. Now, look, I know some of you say I'm crazy. Some may say I'm not, but we need to get on the same page here because you're going to split the church. And you know, when people draw lines behind church leaders, you will fracture a church. Remember 1 Corinthians? In the first letter to the church of Corinthians, he said, look, some of you line up with me, some with Apollos, some with Cephas. Stop it. You're going to fracture the church. It's God who gives the increase and God who does the work. Yes. So you almost get the inkling that he felt like he had to say, don't matter which side of the page you're on, get on the same page for the unity of the church. Now I'm interjecting that there, so take that for what it's worth. So Paul talks about being crazy a little bit. If he's crazy, it's for God. If he's not, it's still a benefit to the people and Then he moves on, and he's going to talk about the motivation for this devotion, the motivation behind his desire to be so committed. He moves into that in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that one died for all, and then all died. He reveals this driving motivation for his life, and it is the love of Christ. The love of Christ compels, he says, this unmerited love that he has experienced. The realization that he, as Saul the Pharisee, didn't deserve the love of Christ and his forgiveness, but received it. And now as Paul the apostle, it compels him to be fully committed, Mm. to be fully devoted to the Lord. It's it's the the death of Jesus. It's his resurrection and that love given over to Paul and and displayed in Paul's life that drives him now. And so you see, Paul preaches this gospel. He teaches within the church. He's defending even his integrity at times, but it's all because the love of Christ compels him. That's right. It drives him. That word compels or compels, compelled, it it, it refers to be under pressure, to apply a pressure that results in an action. There's a lot of different ways to, to describe that. It's, it's kind of like when you, uh, you know, you can blow up a balloon and build up the pressure until something happens. It'll pop. You can put pressure in the balloon and let it go and it'll fly. You can, you can uh, have an explosive that so many times an explosive is, is a rapid chemical reaction that is bound under pressure so that when the reaction happens, it can't be contained and there's an explosion. It's under pressure and it produces action. That's what Paul is saying here. The love of Christ causes him to feel so much pressure to be well-pleasing to him, it compels him to do all that he does. Mm. He's compelled to be fully devoted to God. That's right. It's the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus that compels him. And so there's the driving motivation 
for what he does. The love of Christ that was expressed, he says it this way, in that one died for all. That's the love of Christ. That's right. Amen. That, that phrase, one died for all, is not the best translation there. The best translation says, one died in the place of all. Oh, yes. That's the best translation of that verse. So what Paul's really saying is the love of Christ is this, that he died in the place of all the rest of us. That he took the place that we deserve to be in. That's what Paul's saying this great compelling love is. He's talking about this substitutionary atonement of Christ where Jesus stepped into our place, where he died in our place, by taking our sin, by taking our punishment. Galatians chapter 3 says he became cursed for us. He assumed the curse of sin so that we could escape it. Amen. Jesus removed God's wrath from us. There's a word you'll hear, you'll read it in the Bible. For example, 1 John, you'll read about it in a couple other places. Propitiation. The work of Christ to remove the wrath of God from us. He stepped into our place so that God's wrath was put upon him so that the, the wrath of God was removed from those who are now come to faith in Christ. And so that's what Paul says compels him. This great love that was demonstrated in this substitutionary sacrifice, this substitutionary atonement of Christ. The one who died in the place of all. And then he goes on to say... Then all died. Then all died. Now that doesn't mean every person in the world fell over dead or anything like that. It's simply a phrase to speak to those who come to a saving knowledge of Christ, share in his death. They die to their old nature. That's what he had experienced. Saul, the Pharisee, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and he died in Christ to that old nature, that old person he was. He was united in death in Christ. He was crucified with Christ, he would say in other areas. And so you have this great compelling love of Christ in this substitutionary atonement in which we all die to our old nature when we come to faith in Jesus. But he goes on. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So we're united with Christ in death. We died to our own selves. But then he says, but Christ died also that those who come to faith might live. We are united in Christ's death and we share in his resurrection. In him we have life. In him we die to sin. In him we're resurrected to have newness of life. In him we have the life of righteousness imparted to us. Spiritual life. Being called out of the dominion of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. Spiritual life. That's what he's talking about there. He says, look, I've been united with Christ through death and through resurrection. I've died to my old man and I've Got a new life that I'm living in now. That's the love that compels me because I've experienced that in my life. He's had a radical change. He has. It's caused him to have radical actions. That's right. You know. That's right. And that, that goes along with what he says here because he says this death we've died, the life we live, he says we should live it so that we no longer... Live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. And so the result of this dying to the old self and having a new life is that we no longer live to please ourselves, but to please Jesus. Once again, going back to what he's already stated, being well-pleasing to the Lord. Well-pleasing to the Lord. Displaying the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which mm -hmm. is the ministry of reconciliation. You know, mm -hmm. All that's in that, mm -hmm. in that ministry of the Holy Spirit living in you. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul's crucifying the flesh. That's a fruit of the Spirit. He, 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 he didn't do all his passions and desires no more. He did the desires of Christ. That's right. And so he's pointing out here, look, when you, when you experience this compelling love that's displayed in the substitutionary atonement, 
where you're, not, you're united in death and in life, where you die to the old self, you have a new life, you live for Jesus, you live to please Jesus. It's about him. He, in Romans 14, he would say it this way, I live life for God, so in living, I live for God. And he Amen. said, and in dying, I die for God. Amen. Amen. From the point I met Christ to the day I leave this world, everything I do will be for the Lord. Even in dying, I will die for the Lord. That's the connotation of, of Philippians when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all about Jesus and living for him, to please him. Now that would sound crazy. He's somebody... beside himself. <laughs> he's beside himself. I think the message that he's conveying here in these few verses is just a very simple message. The most important priority of life is to live for Jesus. Amen. Just live for Jesus. Once you experience that compelling love, you just live for Jesus. That will solve not all your problems, but the unanswered questions of what to do in your problems. Mm. Live for Jesus. What do I do in this situation? Live for Jesus. What do I do if I move there? Live for Jesus. What do I do if God takes me to that church? Live for Jesus. What do I do if my kids get in this? Live for Jesus. What I do, what I do, what I live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. That's what you do. You live for Jesus. He goes on to explain further how this compelling love and this desire to live for Jesus has played out in his life. He does this in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Mm. I knew Jesus, but now I don't know him. What kind of statement is that? <laughs> well, here's what he's saying. I believe Paul's pointing to a change that has occurred to him through the compelling love of Christ, through the substitutionary atonement. When he's come to this place of salvation, there has been this change. So in verse 14 and 15, this compelling love that results in dying and living and having a new life has done something within him. He says he no longer regards anyone according to the flesh. Mm, yes. In other words, I don't see a Jew or a Gentile. I don't see a free person or a slave. I don't see someone who's good or bad. I see people as being lost or saved. Yeah. I see people based on their spiritual condition. I have no prejudices. I have no preconceived notions. Red, yellow, black, or white, rich or poor, I look at people and I simply see what is their spiritual condition. I don't look at them according to the flesh. I look at them according to the spirit. Do they know the Lord or do they not know the Lord? Yes. That's how he starts to see people. He's even had a change of view regarding Christ. He says he saw him in the flesh, but he no longer sees him. In other words, Paul knew Christ in the flesh. He knew Christ as a man who had a following, who was considered some type of rabbi, yes. who he thought was a heretic and he wanted to stamp out his following. That's right. But then he came to know Jesus personally, and his view changed. He That's no longer right. knew him in the flesh. He knew him in the spirit. Amen, the spirit. He no longer had just some information about Jesus. He had a relationship with Jesus. So he no longer even saw Jesus the same anymore. He now understood this is the true Messiah, the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, my personal Savior. He had a different view of Christ. It changed his mindset. And I love his, his mindset. I heard a good sermon about a... A pastor was telling about a, a pastor that he knew. And I think this guy had a, a, a wonderful display of how Paul's mindset might have been. No matter what happened to him, like he, had a, he, he described this one time that he had, he had a flat and a wheel just come off the car. And, but anytime something like that would happen to him, he would look around just to figure out why, why God had him there. There's somebody he's going to share the gospel with. And usually every time. There was somebody to put in his place like that. During that time, there was just a woman right behind him out in the middle of nowhere. But, and he got to talking with her. She didn't know Christ, and she came to know the Lord. Stuff like that, but he had that mindset mm -hmm. to always look, are they saved or lost? No matter what the situation, Paul, in a shipwreck situations, all the stuff that he went through, are they saved or are they lost? Mm -hmm. That was his mindset. That was. I think that's, I think 
I mean, I wish I could be like that all that the time something. sometimes. <laughs> that is something, absolutely. The world, the world would be different if we learned to recognize yes. people for their spiritual condition. Yes. Like, why are they, why are they like the way they are? Well, maybe that's mm-hmm. a spiritual thing. And right. usually it is. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely it is. It is. It well, is. the spiritual condition is the condition. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Well, sure they can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Paul here is going to kind of continue the explanation of the change that he has experienced, the change that occurs in the life of people who come to faith. He continues this explanation in verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So this is just a continuation of the explanation of verse 14 and 15, where he's explaining this life that is in Christ. And because of the life that is in Christ, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, because of this compelling love, because of this substitutionary atonement, here's what happens. Those in Christ, those united in his death and resurrection by faith, become new creations. They're new. The old self crucified with Christ, now a new, much better quality, spiritually alive person created within them. A new self comes to be a new creation. Those who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ are not the same people they were the second before they met Jesus because they have died and been recreated. Now, that doesn't mean every bad habit just falls away. No. But the old does pass away. The old things are removed. The old values, the old ideologies, the old priorities, the old desires, they do vanish away, some more quickly than others. You kind of get that mindset, Paul, I see myself doing the things I already do, but I'm not doing the things I already do and all this stuff. Romans 7, that's right. Yes. That's right. The reality is, saving faith in Christ makes us new creations. Number one, and first and foremost, you are spiritually alive where before you were spiritually dead. You're created new spiritually. You're spiritually alive. And from that point forward, the old things pass away. But sometimes passing away takes some time. Uh, We've had a rooster in our pen that I've had to doctor on. (laughs) And finally, I just said, rooster, you're on your own. (laughs) And I figured, I mean, a day or two, that rooster has hung on. He hung on for... Three or four months. Now, he finally, just this week, went on to wherever roosters go. It would have been my dinner plate, but he was old. He went on to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Went on to Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> anyway, his death was delayed. It, he didn't pass quickly. No. There are some things in our lives when we come to faith, those old things, some of them pass quickly. Some of, some of the old desires, they pass quickly. Some of those old priorities pass quickly. But there are other things that sometimes linger. Yeah. That's why we talk about progressive sanctification, the ongoing process of growing in the likeness of Christ. Part of the process of growing in the likeness of Christ is removing the things that are not Christ-like, but it's a process. Old things pass away, Paul says. New things come. New desires, new values, new priorities, new perspectives. Take the place of the old things. Push the old things out. And so when we're in Christ, we become new creations. Paul continues. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. All things are of God. This points back to what Paul has just explained. This process of salvation through this compelling love of Christ being united in his death and his resurrection, becoming a new creation in Christ. All these things are of God. Mm. This happens because of God, this new life, becoming a new creation. Salvation, transformation spiritually, it all comes from God. It's the work of God. 
Salvation, sanctification, everything. It's the work of God. No one can step into this process and claim their own salvation, their own sanctification. That's, uh, that's why some people who have some old things they want to remove never really get them removed because in their own power they try to remove them when this really has to be the work of God. Yes. And in fact, Paul introduces this concept here. This work of God is a work of reconciliation. He says, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God has developed this process. And he has made provision for reconciliation, to be restored to God, to be put back in right relationship to God, to be reconciled, to be reunited, to be rebonded. God has done a work of reconciliation whereby we could be reunited with him as God intended us to know him. That's the provision of God. He has provided for our reconciliation And in fact, he's the one who persuades us to accept his reconciliation. Jesus said that without the Holy Spirit drawing us to know him, no one would ever want to come to know him. That's right. That's the work of God calling us to reconciliation. Ministry of the Holy Spirit at work. I Mm -hmm. love that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this is the work of reconciliation to be reunited, restored, put back right with God. And it's, it's a work done through Christ in Christ. It says it right here. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. This can only happen through the work of Jesus. Yes. Only. Now, just an interesting side note, it doesn't really matter a whole lot to our understanding of the text, but the terms reconciled, reconciliation, they appear in the New Testament only in Paul's writings. Really? Paul is the only one who speaks of this directly in this context. But I think it's because Paul, being such a Pharisee of such a high standard, of such a committed level of understanding the words and the laws of God, coming to know Christ, I think he has this special understanding that even in, even in his pursuit of religion, he was not right with God, separated from God, and he's understanding how he was really put back where he needed to be with God. Mm. I think he's drawing upon his <coughs> understanding of the writings of the prophets and the law to, to express this idea of reconciliation, the reality that we really are in a bad way with God, and it's only through Jesus we can be made right with God. Um, and so he, he portrays God as the reconciler, and he portrays sinners as those who experience reconciliation time and again. Now look at what he says here. He says he's reconciled us through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of of reconciliation. Yes. Those who have been reconciled unto God, those who have been put back right with God through the work of Jesus, now have a responsibility given them to go and share in this ministry of reconciliation. My translation says message of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. That tells me I need to be knocking on doors with this message of reconciliation. Well, we're redeemed through the blood of Jesus, reconciled unto God, and now we take that to others. Uh, And now, a ministry can refer to any humble act of service we use for the purpose of seeing those reconciled to God who are lost. What that means is this. If I have been equipped with the gift of evangelism, I go knock on a door. I share the message of reconciliation. I've been given the gift of hospitality. Then I figure out how I can host a family, show hospitality to them for the purpose of explaining reconciliation to them. That's right. Exposing them to the truth of reconciliation, letting them understand their need to be reconciled to God. Any act we do is a ministry of reconciliation if we do it for the intent, with the intent, for the purpose of seeing the lost reconciled to God. And honestly, that is what we're supposed to do with everything we do. That's right. 
Everything we do, all we do should be ministries of reconciliation, should be acts of service we utilize to see the lost come to know Jesus. Everything we do has to have a focus on the gospel. Kind of like when we look at people, if they're saved or lost, we need to look at our situation. Well, the gifts I've got, what's God made me to do, how can I use this Mm -hmm. to express the message of Mm -hmm. reconciliation? So God, I get a lot of people, well, I'm not built, made for that knocking on the door thing, but you're still made to share the gospel and the message of reconciliation. You just got to figure out what that is, for, mm-hmm. what your gift is in that. You don't get out of sharing the gospel. I don't no. know what people think. They, no. They're not going to get out of sharing Jesus with folks. And if, he, if you think, if you're in that kind of mindset, I, I question you, you yeah. know, where, where, where are you at? And mm-hmm. Have you really received the message of reconciliation? Right. Are you growing? Are you are taking this seriously? You know, because it's, mm-hmm. are you radical? Right. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Well, verse 9 is a continuation of what he said in verse 18. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So the message of reconciliation to be proclaimed as we conduct our ministries for the purpose of reconciliation, is simply that God in Christ reconciles us unto himself. That's right. In Christ, reconciliation to God is possible. Amen. In fact, it is only through the work of Christ, his death and his resurrection, that anyone can be reconciled to God. Only through faith in Christ. I don't even think the word reconciled could exist without Christ. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, be the purpose. Well, so faith in Christ is the means by which we receive or experience the reconciliation of God. And it says here that God does not apply our trespasses. He does not impute the guilt of our trespasses. He, he declares us innocent. This is the forgiveness of sin is what Paul's talking about. That when we come to faith in Christ to be put back right with God, we are forgiven. We're forgiven of sin. We're declared innocent before God. We're declared innocent not because we are innocent, but because Jesus took our guilt that he might reconcile us to God. And so, in reconciliation, the guilt of our sin is removed from us that we could stand right before God. Charles Spurgeon said, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never be together. That's the work of Jesus. That's what he did for us. That's right. And those who have been reconciled have been given, they to them have been committed the word of reconciliation. So here we go back to the message again. We have this message of reconciliation. Now, here Paul says, I want to draw attention to this just because it's interesting to me. Everyone else may think I'm crazy. He says has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Uh Word in Greek, logos. We take that to mean word. We know what a word is. But in ancient Greek, logos meant more than just a word. Yes, it's interpreted word. But it, it referred to something that was not a myth, but something that was true and trustworthy. For example, in the writings of Socrates, he spoke of a particular work and he said, this is no fictitious myth, but it is true logos. Mm. It is something true and trustworthy. Yeah. That's the same word Paul uses here when he says word of reconciliation. In other words, what he says is this. The word of reconciliation refers to the trustworthy truth that we have. We have received this word of truth about reconciliation with God. It's the trustworthy truth that we must share with others. There's no other trustworthy truth anyone will hear that will help them be reconciled to God. Because we have received the trustworthiness of the word of reconciliation, we have a special position. Paul mentions this in verse 20. Because we have received this word of reconciliation, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we receive this trustworthy truth of reconciliation in that now we are ambassadors for Christ in this world. We're his representatives, his spokespeople. That's what Paul was doing here among the church at Corinth. He was being an ambassador for Christ. He was being Christ's representative and spokesperson. We represent the kingdom of Christ and his reconciliation. We represent the kingdom of reconciliation here on earth. We serve as ambassadors of Christ. That's a high position. Yeah, it is. And we have this burden now as those ambassadors to make God's appeal. Look at what he says. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. How is God pleading for people to be reconciled? Through the ambassadors. That's right. And if the ambassadors will not do the pleading, how will anyone be reconciled? So Paul says, look, we've been given the word of reconciliation. We've experienced the reconciliation, and now we're ambassadors. And it is through us that God will plead with people to be reconciled unto him. In fact, it goes on to say, we implore you on Christ's behalf. We're imploring you to experience reconciliation, and we're not doing it for us. We're doing it on Christ's behalf. We're imploring people to be reconciled unto God. Reconciliation is the work of God. It is provided by God, but it can only happen as the reconciled ambassadors of Christ implore the lost, be reconciled unto God. So reconciliation will not happen in the world if the ambassadors of Christ are not imploring and pleading. So when people say, why, where is God? Why do we we not see him working? Well, maybe we don't see the ambassadors working. Maybe God wants to work and his people won't work, you (laughs) you know? Well, so you have this work of reconciliation. It's from this compelling love of Christ whereby we're united in death and life where we become new creations, we're reconciled unto God, but that leaves a problem in that God is holy and just and we're sinners. How can God not violate his holiness by being reconciled to sinners? Something doesn't line up there because a holy, just God cannot allow sinners into his presence. So how can reconciliation happen? Paul's going to explain. He's going to wrap it up by giving the explanation of how this process is even possible. Verse 21, he says, For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Reconciliation is possible because of what Christ has done. Christ makes this possible. He has taken the completely holy and just God, and bridge the gap to sinners. Paul explains how it happened. First off, for he made him who knew no sin. God the Father sent God the Son for this purpose. The one who knew no sin. That's right. The one who knew no sin, the one who was perfect, Why? Because a perfect sacrifice was required. You can go over to the book of Hebrews and read about how Jesus offered himself the perfect sacrifice. His perfect blood has once and for all ended all sacrifices because he has provided the atonement for sin. Yes. But here's the problem. Only a man can die, but only God is sinless. So God had to become a man to make this happen. He made him who knew no sin. God the Father sent God the Son into the world to take on human form. Jesus, God incarnate. And it says here, if I can find it, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So the sinless one became sin. Now that doesn't mean he committed sin. If he committed sin, he couldn't have been the perfect sacrifice. That's right. It means Jesus bore our sin in his own body. It means that Jesus was charged with our sin, although he was innocent. 
It means that Jesus was punished as if he were guilty because the penalty of sin we deserve was put upon him. He became our sin so that God's wrath could be satisfied, so the penalty of sin could be paid for. And he did it for us, it says. Those who have come to faith in Jesus escaped the wrath of God because Jesus has satisfied God's wrath. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, here's the problem. If you don't have faith in Christ, that's not really applying to you. No. Because you're still under the wrath of God. That's right. You don't have to be because you can come to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus where this applies to you. Jesus satisfied God's wrath for those who have come to faith in him. It says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus did this to declare us righteous before God. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. It has been put upon us. It has been placed in our account for our benefit. That's right. We have had righteousness bestowed upon us because we can't be righteous. So the righteousness required to be reconciled with God is the righteousness of Jesus that he confers upon us because he died in our place. So how can a holy and just God be reconciled to sinners? Because Jesus stepped in and became sin for us and then gave us his righteousness that we could be made right with God. That's radical. It is. It's a radical love. It is. That wraps up chapter 5, so we're going to stop right there and jump into chapter 6 next time. Chapter 5 is a good chapter. It's one of those chapters of the Bible I'd encourage you to go back and reread and kind of hold on to because it has application for so many different aspects of life. I'm just going to go knocking on doors and start reading from chapter 5. There you go. And and just be like, are you saved or are you lost? And then that would be it. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Well, we want to thank everyone who's tuned in tonight online. Um, As always, thank you for being here along the narrow way. Those who listen to the podcast, keep it up. Keep sharing that with people. We're going to sign off with everyone out there so we can have prayer time here at the church. I do invite you, if you're watching, if you ever have opportunity to come to the church on a Wednesday evening, sit with us, be a part of the family of God here and enjoy fellowship and encouragement, edification. It's just different when you're here because you get to talk to people and visit with people and be encouraged by these people. So I just invite anyone out there, make your way here if you ever can. Tell us you're a viewer that's made their way. We'll let you sit on the front row (laughs) or the back row, your choice. Be radically changed. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Well, we're going to sign off tonight and go to prayer time. You have been listening to Along the Narrow Way, hosted by Pastor Will Russell and co-hosted by Jimmy Miller. If you haven't done so, subscribe to the podcast so you can get updates on new episodes. Thank you for listening, and remember to stay faithful to walk along the narrow way with Jesus.